from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a Skype interview with Terry Spratt, a Baha'i educator who traveled all over the world in service to humanity through education. Terry is inspired to write a book tying current events to the Baha'i faith. We took some time to discuss the current economic crisis in relationship to the Baha'i faith. I apologize for the quality of the sound. I was experimenting with Skype, and I didn't realize the sound quality had suffered until after the interview was over. But bear with it. Terry's interview is so interesting you'll forget about the sound quality. I started the interview by asking Terry where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, and Montreal, Quebec. And I come from a very strong Irish Catholic background. We had some rough times. We knew some poverty in my youth, but the family was very loving, and uh, that will make up for a multitude of other problems. Were your parents immigrants from Ireland? No, actually, if you know, I was fourth generation, but in Toronto at that time, it was still somewhat ghettoized. The Irish community was uh, not the most favored. In 1950, you couldn't get a job at the city of Toronto if you were a Dogen, Irish Catholic. So how poor were you? We had periods where my dad was unemployed and we had to move out of Montreal and the family was split up for about a year. While we regrouped, there was some alcoholism in the background, which is not unknown, but we survived it. The family came back together and uh, it was a family of four, two brothers and a sister. And I'm a retired teacher myself. How old were you when your family got back together? I was about uh, 14. We split when I was uh, 11 and uh, back when we were 14. So was there some adjustment that you had to make getting back together? I don't remember an adjustment so much as we were very glad to get back together. So away we went from there. You know. Terry, it's all part of building... All part of building what? Character. What were your interests growing up? I was a bit of a yahoo. I'm a child of the 50s, so I was a bit of a rebel. Um, I didn't have any serious interests other than hanging around with the guys. You know, a gang in those days was not ne- not necessarily violent. We were just a bunch of guys out looking to make mayhem, you know, that's all. We never did anything seriously wrong. And what did you do after high school? High school, I left grade 13, partly because of uh, family difficulties. And uh, I left in the middle of the year. And some year, About three years later, I decided I should go back to school. So I picked up the phone, and I phoned Columbia in New York City. And uh, they said, come on down and write a test, which I did. And uh, I uh, obviously, I was successful in getting in. So I spent a year at Columbia. It was expensive for me at that time. But I used that year to get my the equivalent of my uh, high school up here. We have 13 years in high school or had at that time, plus some advanced credit, and then I transferred back to Western in London, Ontario. And I did a degree in philosophy and economics. 
Now, why did you choose Columbia? Uh, because it was Ivy League. I wanted a good school. I heard about it. I like New York. I still do. I love New York. So why do you think they accepted a high school dropout? Because I, fa I passed the test. I an see. admissions test. So you, you showed aptitude. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> you studied, you said, economics and philosophy. Right. That's an interesting combination. But philosophy is, uh, you know, in the 19th century, they used to rate, they used to rank the various disciplines. And at the top, at the apex of the discipline was philosophy. And that's why, for example, you can have a doctor of philosophy in mathematics, and chemistry, mm -hmm. astrophysics, or whatever. Philosophy is a science of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Were you interested in philosophy before you went to university? Not really. I wasn't interested in anything. The truth. I was just lurching from day to day. I didn't have any strong goals. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, it was some years later that I uh, went into teaching, and that was by fluke, by accident. Uh, I was looking for work. I'd been in management consulting and various things. I was a credit reporter with Dun & Bradstreet, the youngest in Canada. And uh, but none of, none of those things were of interest to me until I got into teaching, and from then I stayed in teaching and found some roots, especially since I became a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. So after you finished university, what was your first work? Okay, my first, after university, I, what I wanted to do is go to law school. I went to law school and I hated it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't cut out to be a lawyer. This is not a comment or a criticism of lawyers. It's just that, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit all people, and I, I didn't like it at all. So I... Um, I left law school. I didn't do that well because I was drinking a lot, quite frankly, at that time. I myself had a problem with alcohol. Mm. Then I uh, took other jobs, and then I went into teaching, as I say, and stayed. Yeah, so tell me how that happened. I was out of work. My wife and I consulted what could I do, and I saw this ad for a northern Ontario school. Now, this is in a town called Chaplow, which is really way up in the... In northern Ontario, it's one of the coldest places in Canada. I remember 52 below. And they had a position there in a school, a high school. I hadn't been to the Faculty of Education yet, even. But I went, I, he hired me on a, what they call a letter of permission. And then the following summer, I went to the Faculty of Education, and the summer after that, to uh, do my credentials in teaching. And then I transferred after two years to uh, Kitchener. I spent a year there, and then I went back to Sudbury, which is in the north, and stayed there for four and a half years. Then I went to Australia. I pioneered to Australia at the end of what we call the nine-year plan. Uh, they needed some help. I stayed there for three and a half years, then came back to Canada. Stopped in all kinds of countries on the way, went on pilgrimage, went into Iran and uh, Israel, obviously, and then back to Canada. Did you always teach the same subject and or the same age Primarily, no. In the first year, it was always high school, but I started with grade 9, 10, 11, and 12. I had English, um, I had uh, history, I had accounting, bookkeeping, geography. It was a mixed bag. And then I gravitated towards English, and in my final, after that, it was all English. Once I moved out of Chaplow, it was all English, and at the end, it was primarily senior English, and I was a teacher of uh, senior English writer's craft, which is 
teaches essay writing, short story writing, etc., and world religions. So how did you run into the Baha'i faith? I was at university. This was uh, after I came, uh, I was leaving Kitchener. I'd been in Kitchener for one year. I was taking an, another course in English. And I was taking a course, if I remember correctly, in Shakespeare. And the professor happened to be an American professor, and he was Baha'i. I'd never heard the word. We used to stay after class talking about various issues, nothing to do with Shakespeare, social issues. I found some of his ideas quite intriguing, quite fascinating, and I heard he had these like coffee clatches, what we call firesides. And I waited till the course was over and I went to his house. That was in the summer of 1968. And the first fireside I went to, I think, was about August the 18th, and I became a Baha'i on September the 14th. And then I went back to the new job in Sudbury. Did you have any religious leanings before you ran into the Baha'i faith? Oh, sure. I was, I was a Catholic, raised a Catholic. I was an altar boy. I could say most of the Mass in Latin. Mm -hmm. All my education was in Catholic schools, separate schools up to grade 8, and then St. Michael's College in Toronto, which was a, high, um, a private high school Catholic. Mm -hmm. In my family, we have every religious order you can imagine. Jesuits, Trappists, and Brazilians, Cistercians, including the nuns. So it's a very religious family. In the, in the Irish tradition, one of the sons should be a priest, and there was some sense that I would be. I think uh, God had other plans, you know, so that's the way it went. So were your parents or your father disappointed that you didn't go into the priesthood initially? Oh, yeah, they, they, they knew that I was going to make my own way because I was a little bit, shall we say, independent. Mm -hmm. You know, so I did make my own way. Now... Interestingly enough, two years after I became a Baha'i, my mother became a Baha'i. And my father was never declared himself a Baha'i, but he was very sympathetic. He never interfered in that anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, was, it wasn't difficult for you to transition from being a Catholic to being a Baha'i? No, not at all. Not in the sense of beliefs, no. First of all, the first thing that struck me was that the, the teachings made sense. Now, remember that in my background, and I'm very proud of my background, but in my background, there were some teachings which were add-ons. They were completely man-made. Uh, limbo. They got rid of limbo and Catholicism some two years ago. I was having no place in Catholic theology. Well, it never did have any place. They've also changed their teachings on suicide. You can be, be buried now in a Catholic cemetery. That wasn't true when I was a young boy. Uh, there's certain, like, becoming a Baha'i, is not a rejection of your past, but it's a clarification of what the true teachings were. And uh, you see very early that there were some add-ons. They've all, all the faiths have added on today. So what were your parents' initial reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? My mother went to a priest. She went to a priest and uh, she said, my son has become a Baha'i. The priest said, well, just leave him alone. That's just the beginning. That's all he said. Now, my uncle, who was a Jesuit, the Jesuits are the, the highest educated in the Catholic clergy. He, they're the religious types, the ones that, uh, religious as distinct from secular, they have the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. He was a missionary in Darjeeling, India, and he came back every five years. Every five years he came back, somebody in the family died. So we finally said, Jack, please don't come back so often. But when he did come back this one time, after I'd become a Baha'i, 
my aunts. I had an aunt. I was her favorite nephew. And she said, Jack, you'll have to do something about Terry. He's left the church. And he said, well, what has he become? And she said, a Baha'i. And he said, leave him alone. Now, I didn't know at the time that in, he told me this another five years later when he was back, that in Darjeeling, India, he used to have breakfast with a Persian Baha'i couple over the, and had had for over a period of 18 years. So he didn't know a lot about the Baha'i faith, but he knew enough to respect that the people were, um, had integrity and it wasn't a, a cult. And how did your mother end up becoming a Baha'i? Well, two years later, we talked about it, and it made sense to her, so she became a Baha'i. It was over a period of, as I say, about two years. She'd continue to go to church with my dad to support him, etc. At her funeral, my dad, of course, the principal being unity, my dad arranged the funeral at the Catholic Church. Now, my uncle, the Jesuit, the same one, he, he was the officiating priest. There were nine priests on the altar. They were nine which is an interesting number. We had the Baha'i readings, and we had the Catholic service. The night before in the funeral parlor, Jack, my uncle, would say, okay, now we'll, first we'll have one of mine, or one of yours, then we'll have one of ours. So we'd have Baha'i prayers, then Catholic prayers. He was a special person. So how long after you became a Baha'i did you decide to go to Australia to help the Baha'i faith? Uh, I became a Baha'i in 1968, went to Australia in 1973, stayed till 76. Tell me about your first days in Australia. First days in Australia, we went from Sudbury, which was the winter, in January the 17th we left. Now fortunately we took a ship, so it was a 17-day trip. It was uh, minus 40 in Sudbury. When we, when we stepped into Sydney, which is their summer, it was plus 40. 40 Celsius, which is 104. <laughs> so it's from minus 40 Fahrenheit, they're equal at that level, to 104 Fahrenheit. I thought I was stepping into a blast furnace. Mm. But we loved the people, we loved the country, we were there for three years and three months. I left in 1976. What did you teach in uh, the Australian schools? I taught English. What I age? taught history also in, in one school. I taught in a first See, they offered me a job right off the bat in Sydney. It's a statewide system there. It's not a board by, you know, by municipal area. It's a, the state runs the whole educational system. They needed teachers in a town that didn't need Baha'is, so I didn't take the job. And I came back from Sydney, where the educational administration is, and I, within four days, a priest knocked on the door. And he was a priest of a, of a redemptorist monastery. And this is where young men are going in to become redemptorist priests. And he started off by saying, may I ask what religion you are? And I said, I'm Baha'i. Have you ever heard about it? And he said, well, I'm something or other. But, And then we went right on, and I taught there for two years. Now, I had taught very briefly in a girls' school just to help them out at the end of a term. But I, I was the English and history master there. The, the first non-priest in the place taught. I was the English and history master, and they had down there state exams. So... Everything is on the state exam, and fortunately, all my students passed both both subjects. Now, did you have a job lined up when you went to Australia? No. No. You just were confident that you'd find something to support yourselves when you got there? One way or another, yes. Canadian teachers, and American for that matter, have great mobility. 
as teachers. They can teach anyone in the world because their credentials are highly respected. So I wasn't too concerned about that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just go and see what God has in plan. Was it difficult for you to change your lifestyle after becoming a Baha'i? Only in terms of not drinking. I had been a serious drinker, and even before I became a Baha'i, I was drinking. But uh, the night I became a Baha'i, and I have great sympathy, great uh, sensitivity to people who have any addiction problem. What went through my head was, I have six bottles of beer in the fridge. And then I realized how stupid that was. Got over it. And then, of course, I was the house wasn't ready. We purchased a new house in Sudbury, and it wasn't ready. So I was alone for from September the 14th to November the 28th, almost three months, three months and change. And I can remember driving around looking at streets because I had no habits, no interests that didn't involve drinking. But I got through it. I, uh, and I developed from that a theory that, uh, you know, you're never tested beyond your capacity. Now, that doesn't mean that you have the stuff to do it all by yourself because you have to add in the, into the equation assistance. And so I, I have this theory of if I only have 10% of the capacity, God will put up 90, the other 90 at first. And then it's 20, 80, and 30, 70, and so on, okay, until you grow your own legs. But we are assisted. And anybody in addictions counseling will tell you, you don't send an alcoholic to a mining town, which Sudbury is, without any social network, nothing. No, I had absolutely no friends other than drinking partners. Now, were you married at the time that you became a Baha'i? Yes, I was. And what, would, what did your wife think of the Baha'i faith? She became a Baha'i the same night. Actually, she preceded me by 10 minutes. What were the circumstances that had you leave Australia? Well, we'd come to the end. Uh, it was the end of the plan. And the assembly where we had we'd gone to a, what they call a station town, which is a ranch, a lot of sheep, sheep ranch, sheep and cattle, the job at the monastery had run out, and we decided that we would possibly go to India. There's a Baha'i school in India. And so we were going to, we came back a very circuitous route. We went to uh, Burma, into, the, into Burma on the back of a jeep. Uh, Burma was a closed country, but they had a seven-day window, which just happened to coincide with our itinerary. Then we went to India. Then we went to uh, Iran saw the House of the Bab and the House of Baha'u'llah in Tehran, and then we went to Israel, and then went to Finland to a conference, and then came home. But when in India, we were at Panchgani, which is a Baha'i school, New Era Baha'i school, they were thinking of opening a teacher's college, but that would be late, that would be much later, maybe two or three years. You know, we came back, and then all kinds of things happened, and, you know, I've been very fortunate as a Baha'i to have all kinds of opportunities. So tell me your impressions of Burma. Burma at the time, I would never forget the man who gave us a tour. He was bilingual. He had three daughters. I remember two of their names, Mumu and Mimi. He took us to um, Abdu'l-Baha's village, it's called, Daidnau, which is started from the time of Baha'u'llah, Siyad Mustafa Rumi. He had traveled out of Iran across the top of India into Burma. This village was named after him. The whole village was behind. You know, Warren, you always get more than you give. This village, because it was a Baha'i village, followed the Burmese customs with a distinct Baha'i flavor. So, for example, if you were the honored guest, they put all the food for the whole village on the table. And then you would sit alone 
while the villagers stood around and they would fan you while you ate. <laughs> then, if you were regular Burmese, the men would eat, then the women and children, then the pigs, then the dogs. Because it was a Baha'i village, the guests eat, then the men, women and children, then the pigs, then the dogs. It was renowned as a model village in the area. And the assembly, I remember this gentleman from, uh, he had grown up in the village, gone on to Oxford for his PhD, and he had come back in retirement to teach the children. And in Burma, they wear the abbas, the long gowns that you recognize from in parts of the Middle East and uh, Indian Burma. And they would be following him like little goslings across this tarmac. And the, the abbas were so long, you wouldn't see their feet move. And their hands were up the cuffs of each sleeve. And they looked like little Caspers dressed in black, you know, the ghost. Right. It was quite a sight. And that's what he was doing. So then we went to a village that wasn't behind. It was partly behind. And they had the same thing. And then this gentleman came up to me, and he didn't have a tooth in his head. And he asked through a translator, did I enjoy the bread? Now, obviously, if someone asks you that, you say yes. Now, I didn't realize at the time that this man walked into Rangoon to buy that loaf of bread. They, bread to them was like filet mignon. It was a real treat. And they had bought this in the honor of our visit. Wow. You learn things about courtesy and you know, right. dignity. Right. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit more about your experience in India. What were your impressions? In India, we stayed at Panjgani, and the kids were young then. My kids were, uh, at that time, this would have been 1976. My daughter was about seven. My son was five. Now, when we arrived in India, we arrived in Bombay. Then Bombay, now Mumbai. We disembarked from the plane. There, there were, we had to disembark right on the tarmac. And the kids had these little cameras, and they were taking pictures. Immediately, we, we were surrounded by the army because it was also an Air Force base. And they took us into this room and with these guards, sentries, who didn't understand English, but the colonel did and knew why we were taking pictures. And it was quite hilarious when you think of it because we didn't exactly look like spies from Pakistan. But uh, we never did get the cameras back, nor the film. Then when we went to Panchgani, which is, we stayed in Pune, which is up the road, and in a, the National Hotel, which was run by Baha'is, and then we went to Pune, and we stayed there probably, oh, seven to ten days. I got enough doll to last me for a while, although I like it now. <laughs> the food is different, but I, there was a woman there. She lived outside, just outside the school, in a lean-to, and this woman would cook her chapati over a fire every night and she was always smiling and I got to know her and, and through a translator she had five children she was a widow she made eight rupees a day which at that time would have been about 64 cents and it cost her five rupees to buy a kilo of rice she was as happy as Larry because her kids were going to the school that's all that she wanted it teaches especially at the high school at that time the high school became by the way the most renowned school in the district. And it was the uh, school that the government, the district government used as the litmus test, if you want, the, the standard of excellence for the district. What was the name of the school? New Era School. 
you didn't have an opportunity to teach there? No, I, I had to keep a low profile. At that time, there were 500,000 teachers unemployed in India. Now, at New Era, not all the teachers are behind, and not all the students are. A lot of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, etc., will send their kids there because of its reputation. You'll find that all over the world. In uh, Zambia, it's the same thing with the Banani School. A lot of the students are not behind. Most of them are. But they go for the, for the standard of excellence. So I had to keep a low profile that way because I was a bit threatening. A Western teacher coming in, what are they going to do, who are they going to get rid of, things like that. So I just kept in the background. I wasn't there to be a regular teacher anyway. There was a chance that I would teach at the teacher's college. And then you said you went to Iran and you mentioned that you visited the house of the Bab and Baha'u'llah. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Baha'i faith, do you want to explain who those folks are and, and your experience there in Iran? Sure. First of all, the Bab is the forerunner to Baha'u'llah. He's considered the co-author of the Baha'i era. These are the twin manifestations or the twin messengers of God for this age. In, in Islamic prophecy, there will be two blasts of the trumpet. Now, the Bab is the first blast of the return of Elijah, and uh, he grew up in Shiraz as a young merchant. He was noted for his purity, his integrity, absolute trustworthiness in business. He was a business, a merchant. The Bob started teaching uh, his mission in 1844. It soon became known that the Bob's teachings were revolutionary. And thousands of people used to come to listen to him, thousands. And they used to come listen to some of his what we call the letters of the living who were like the apostles. Tahare was a female, okay? She was a poetess. She was known for her beauty, her, her purity, and her, her talent. She was also very articulate, so the women used to listen to her by the hundreds. And eventually they, they martyred the Bob in uh, Tabriz in, in 1850. Baha'u'llah, now these are titles, by the way. The Bob means the gate. Jesus said, I shall come by way of the gate. And that's the title of the Bab. Baha'u'llah, his, his born name is Hussein Ali. He declares his mission in 1863, but he's aware of his mission in 1853. Now, Jesus was aware of his mission, but his public declaration of his mission as to who he was is really about a week before he was crucified. Palm Sunday, okay? It's not long. And they did, they, first of all, they imprisoned Baha'u'llah. He was imprisoned as a Babi. He was a follower of the Bab. He was uh, sent to the place called the Siyashal of Tehran, which was a pit, was a terrible place. Then he was eventually exiled. As his influence grew, and remember that we're talking about teachings, we need to understand, uh, Warren, why is it that we have in religious history prophecies concerning the next messenger, we pray for it to happen. We say we want it to happen. When it happens, we reject it. This has happened consistently with all of them. Why would that be? The reason is that the teachings that they bring are revolutionary, and some of us don't like change. So in the Bob's case, it's, it, it's the equality of women. Let's look at all the Baha'i teachings. The harmony of science and religion. How many conflicts have we had between science and religion? The abolition of clergy independent investigation of truth, and a number of social teachings which are meant to address things like extreme wealth and poverty. And poverty, by the way, is not simply money. It's the absence of opportunity. 
opportunity to education, to health care, etc. We in the West have access to the best education, the best health care, the best legal defense that money can buy. But if you don't have money, you're in a different situation, except for those who may get scholarships, etc. So anyway, these teachings caused them, and the reception of the population got the, the authorities, the political authorities, at the instigation of the divines, the chief divines, not the genuine priests, mullahs, etc. There were many of them who became Baha'is. But the, the leadership, it's like in Christianity, Annas and Caiaphas, the, the high priests in the court of the Sanhedrin, etc. So they got them to exile Baha'u'llah, first to Iraq, to Baghdad, and then to um, uh, Constantinople, at that time, the Ottoman Empire, then to Adrianople, and then to Akka. Now, Akka, your, your listeners may recognize Akka, it's St. John d'Arc, St. John of Acre. Akka, Acre, Acre, it's all the same place. It was a prison city, basically, for the Ottoman Empire, and the, the story went that if a bird flew over Akka, it would drop dead from the stench. It was a pest hole. The worst criminals in the empire were kept there, and this is where Baha'u'llah was sent. When you go on pilgrimage, in 1976 we could do this in Iran, you can't do it now, but we went to the house of the Bab in Shiraz, this is where he declared his mission. We went to the house of Baha'u'llah in Tehran, and even some of the Persian Baha'is didn't know where it was, because it was even before the 1979 revolution, the Baha'is were oppressed and uh, persecuted. Not, you know, it, it never stopped from day one, 165 years of this, but it, it had periods of waning and waxing, if you wanted. And so we went to the house of Baha'u'llah, then we went, this is all part of pilgrimage in those days, and then we went to Israel, where we went to, you know, Baji. First of all, the, the shrine of the Bab, which is on Mount Carmel, that's a that's a prophetic fulfillment as well. Then we went to Bah the resting place of Baha'u'llah, which is in Baji, and we saw some of the other places where he was allowed to live after being released from Baji in the later years of his life. So that's these are considered holy places to us, very holy places. So it so happens that when Baha'u'llah was exiled, as you said, to Iraq and then to the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, and then Adrianople, which is today Adirne, and then finally to Akka, which is now, I guess, Acre uh, today. It's, it's at that point that he actually passed away in Israel. So it kind of explains how the, right. the Baha'i faith was born in Iran but a lot of its holy places are in the state of Israel today, which is causing right. some problems for Baha'is, and maybe you can explain what those problems are. The accusation made against Baha'is ties into the fact that the devil to some people is the United States, and, uh, and it's his sister Israel. Now, this comes from the fact that the United States whether people like to admit it or not, in 1776 with the revolution, you have a new type of democracy. In Britain, even though, you know, Baha'u'llah paid uh, great respect to the, in his writings, letters to Victoria, 
great respect to the parliament giving rights to the people, etc. But what is different about the United States and its grand experiment in democracy is a number of things. One, in Britain you had a class system. To give you an example, many people may not know this. Eton, which is where the, it's, a, it's called a public school, it's where the princes go, it's not public in the sense that we know public school. It's public in the sense that it's not connected to a particular denomination, but it's not public. You didn't have social mobility. If your name was Carpenter in England or Mason, that's because that's what your father did. He was a Mason or a Carpenter. And you were locked into this social class, whether you, you know, that's the way it was. Now, the United States was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of class. So you had in Australia and in Canada. So you had a number of people, the Irish went to Australia and Canada and the United States and everybody came and you would end up according to what your efforts had, had produced. So the Israel, by the way, in Baha'u'llah's writings is referred to as the specially designated land. That's the term he uses. Now, it is providence that brings Baha'u'llah to Israel. And the people who are enemies of Israel and the United States are, by the way, also enemies of the Baha'is, generally speaking. Even though Baha'is have different freedoms, they have some freedoms in these parts, but they're under the gun in many parts. In Iran, we know what's going on there right now. And so the hardliners like to, to move all of their enemies into one basket and accuse them for everything from bad economy to the weather. And that's why the Baha'is are accused of being uh, spies. They're simply because their world center is in Israel. Now, the irony to that is Baha'is are not political, not political in the partisan sense. We obey the government of the land in which we live. Uh, we do not uh, participate in partisan politics. Partisan politics means the party system. And that's because the whole purpose of the Baha'i faith is to promote unity. Partisanship, by the, by the very word part, it, it divides people. So the whole reason behind this animosity to the Baha'is is connected very much to the state of Israel. But also, remember, it existed long before Israel existed. It's an antagonism to the, against the teachings. Now, you'll hear people in the Western media say, and, and commentators say, that the reason they don't like the West is because of its teachings. Now, the West is not perfect. It has excesses of liberty and various other things. But in a Baha'i construct, people have to be able to make choices. And we are also accountable for those choices. So after your whirlwind return from Australia, what did you do? Well, I applied for a teaching job. It was a half-time teaching position. At that time, we had a competition. Uh, there was a lot of teachers, and there was 170-some people looking for this job. I was fortunate enough to get it. I was fortunate in the sense that I had the best background. I had the best experience. I had been on a curriculums committee in the North for World Religions, and I, I knew my stuff. Even though I'm not an English major, I learned my English, from, in a, first of all, my high school was reasonably good, but more significantly, I learned my English in the field, in the trenches, if you want. My first principal was a Scotsman. He was fantastic. He knew his stuff cold, and he made me work to understand everything, and I did. I came to came to know it. 
And so I, I took this job, and then I did a couple of fill-in, if you want, relief teaching assignments in very difficult schools. They liked what I did because the students were extremely difficult to handle. And so the superintendent of that board said, I have a job for you in an academic school. So away I went. And then I went to an interview for a job in another part of Toronto. At that time, there were six different boroughs in Toronto. And there was a, a principal, an area superintendent, and this, all kinds of people, more than you usually see at an interview. And then the superintendent followed me out and he said, this job isn't for you, but I have one for you. It's in an academic school. And I am more of an academic teacher than general level. I went there and I stayed there for three years. And then I uh, was transferred to another very academic school. It was number one, two in the province. I stayed there for 10 years until I retired. So what's the difference between an academic school and a general curriculum? We have two different levels in Ontario. So, for example, those students who are aimed for university, they're academic. The students who are aimed for a community college or for an apprenticeship program, they're general level. We're not all put together the same way. Mm -hmm. You can't expect some, some kids to be able to master the intricacies of Shakespeare when that's not really what their career is going to involve. And it's not critical. What is more critical is that they be able to communicate in, a, in an effective way within the if you want the requirements of that trade, skill, or profession. So the general level is less strict, if you want, than the academic, but it focuses on things like the business report. I, I'll give you an example. I had two students in my class because the school was so academic. We didn't have a separate class for the general level. We had to accommodate them. So what we would do is seed them in an academic class, and then the teacher just treats them differently. These two students, Italian background, they were not going to university. They came from a wealthy background. They were probably going to go into the car business, and they loved cars. So they have to give a presentation. My students had to give a presentation, part of their communication assignment, twice a year. And I would make the academic students, I'd give them a, a choice of authors, mostly classical, written prior to 1920. That's my decision because that's where the best literature is. Dickens and Thackeray and all these people. But these two, they said, sir, can we do a presentation on the Lamborghini? And I said, absolutely. They gave a presentation on Lamborghini and they had everything. They had the audio, visual, they loved this stuff. And they did an excellent job. Now that fulfills the requirements of their communications. And it's to me interest-based education. But that's the difference. I did the New York State Regents exam, by the way, in 1987. I was thinking of teaching down there until I found out what they paid them. It was terrible in New York at that time, terrible. They were going to send me to an academic school in that particular test. And it was, quite frankly, the toughest test that I've ever taken as a teacher. I did well, but because they offered me a special visa to go on and take a job there, but I, I couldn't afford to live in New York for something like $27,000 a year. And that was, uh, the, the average of the starting was 18. But because of my experience, they were going to give me this 20 grand. I phoned a friend of mine who works with the Baha'i International Community down there. I said, will you pay for rent? He said, 1500 And that's because he's a friend. A lot of teachers, as you know, in the United States have two jobs. 
in some jurisdictions, and that's sad. That's the difference between general and academic. So it's interesting that you have a reputation of being able to deal well with difficult kids, yet you were directed toward the academic curriculum. What was your style that allowed you to be able to reach these difficult kids, and why was it that you were directed to the academic direction even though you were good with these kids? Uh, first of all, by natural inclination, I am more of an academic in my own. However, I did have, as I said, I taught general level classes. Now, my approach to, to teaching it is a student-centered system. It's not teacher-centered, it's not subject-centered, it's student-centered. So, for example, I used to also, for the University of Toronto University, Queen's University, I would take student teachers and put them through their practicum. They had to come out for five weeks during the year. They'd come out two weeks the first of the year, and then come out five weeks later. And I used to be one of the supervising teachers for their practicum. And I used to say to them, a teacher has two faces, an official face and a human face. If you don't have a human face, they might give you respect, but it's not really respect. They're just deferring to you because you are a person of authority. If I had a discipline problem in a class, I'd take them outside the room. I'd never, never deal with it. And then I'd very often use humor. I can remember, especially with my, the, the students, grade 11 or beyond, I'd start by saying, you have capacity coming out of your ears. What are you acting like a schlep for? And of course, they'd start smiling. This is not what they were used to. But I think more out of respect for me, they would change. Because they didn't want me to feel bad, to be upset with them. And that's because I think they, they genuinely respected that I had their interests at heart. Okay, I'll tell you one quick story. I had a student who was coming to class a little late from guidance. And I happened to open the door and see her coming down the, the hall. She looked like she was coming from a funeral. I said, what's the matter? And she said, Mrs. So-and-so just told me I should never consider going to university because I'd never make it. And I said, excuse me? She said, yeah. I said, you take that and put it in the garbage can and don't let anybody interfere with your dreams. She came back to me when she graduated from university. She came back to see me. Say hello. So it has to be student-centered, and you have to realize that every student has a story. I'll tell you one quick one, Juan. In my first years in, in Northern Ontario, this was my third or four year, fourth year of teaching, I went in to relieve a teacher who was sick, suddenly becomes sick. I was the acting head of the department at the time. And this was a grade 10 class, and they were a little bit rowdy, and I put them to work. And this one kid in the front row and this was a big kid. Uh, he's 15 going on 16, if not already 16. He probably outweighed me. And I, and I turned to him, and he wasn't getting to work, and I said, get to it. And he said, go, you know, and he, he used an expletive of what I should do. And, of course, when he, when he put me in that kind of position, I had no choice, and I said, out. Now, the vice principal's office was two doors up the hall. I calmed the rest of the class down. I went to the door and looked up the hall. He was two doors up on the other side, looking down, waiting to go in to see the vice principal. I didn't know at the time, had he gone in, that would have been it. He was on thin ice. But he happened to look up and catch my eye, and I gave him the sign to come back, see me. 
And I said, what's really the problem? Well, what came out was incest in the home, and it was just a mess. I should go back in the class. And I got a, a social worker in later that afternoon. It was He was perfectly normal. I mean, I don't blame him for the burden he was carrying. So you have to understand, there's a story behind you, every student. So you're retired now? I'm retired. I'm still involved in teaching. I'm doing a Ruhi uh, book one and a Ruhi three for the Baha'is up here. Maybe you could explain to folks who aren't familiar with that what you refer to the Ruhi books. There is an emphasis in the Baha'i community worldwide, and you'll find it in every community, to work at the neighborhood level. Now, I just want to comment that all of the social, all of the human rights movements, major social movements in the modern era, started at the grassroots. Whether it's women's equality, the peace movement, the environmental movement, the kindness to animals movement, the self-help movement, they all started not from the top, but from the grassroots. This is a grassroots movement, not involving clergy, because we don't have any, where people study for themselves. They improve their spiritual awareness by studying certain writings, and it's divided into, we now have eight different courses. It starts with an introductory course on the nature of the soul, the purpose of life, and then it goes to uh, how do we worship, to have devotional gatherings and with themes, then we have the education of children. We have a youth uh, animators, if you want. We have uh, a section on the covenant, and it goes on and on. Okay, there are a whole bunch of different themes, and they will they will continue to develop different themes. And what it is is a neighborhood, grassroots organization of people, whether they're Baha'is or not. Uh, the people at the, the meetings I go to. Many of them are not Baha'is. In some cases, you may find a majority who aren't, but they're interested in spirituality. You know, it's very true that some people want nothing to do with religion, but they do want something to do with spirituality. And so we have to distinguish between the two. A lot of people, because of personal experience, what they've seen go on, religion is a bad word to them. And so we are members of the Baha'i faith, and what they're reacting against we would react against as well. Terry, have you done any writing? Uh, you're the fourth person in the last three months to ask me. I'm <laughs> seriously thinking of doing this. I've been asked to do this for quite some time, and I guess I have to get to it. If you did, <laughs> what would you write? I'd probably write an introduction to the faith. Even though we have a number, I, I'd like to uh, perhaps attack that but I would make it a little bit more comprehensive in terms of tying it to uh, current events, current trends, something like that. What are the current trends that you're seeing now that you could tie to the Baha'i faith? Well, for example, the elimination of extreme wealth and poverty. I was at a conference in Phoenix. There was a professor, a Persian professor, who was talking about structural changes. Now, if you had said this 10 years ago, you have been laughed out of the room. Uh, in other words, if you attack capitalism in any way, shape, or form, you were almost like a pinko or something. You, you were weird. Now the conversation has started, and we need to recognize that that's how changes come about. First of all, for anything to change, there has to be an awareness level that grows to the point where there's a conversation that starts. And what we have in the world today is a system of capitalism first clearly enunciated by Adam Smith, 1700, 
that believed in the invisible hand. Personal interest would sort itself out with the invisible hand. There's a guy that followed him 20 years later and said, the market is not designed for saints. Now, I think we probably agree with him. With the, with the meltdown on Wall Street and the nonsense and the destruction that that brought. Okay, I was in Ireland where 86% of the mortgages are underwater and largely from the bubble, also tied to the mortgage fiasco. Now, what we need is a, an economic system that balances, as the writings say, the rights of capital and the rights of labor. But then you open up the question, well, what are the rights of labor? Do people have a right to a job? Some people would say absolutely not, absolutely not. Well, in the Baha'i writings, everyone should have a, have a trade, skill, or profession that contributes to the well-being of humanity. Well, if that's a responsibility, where do you apply that responsibility if there's no right, no opportunity to work? We've lived with this type of economic cycles, boom and bust, and the people who always suffer in a bust, they may benefit a little in the boom, but they definitely suffer in a bust, are the working people. In this recent fiasco, the wealthy lost 12%. And they more than made that up since. So it's inequitable. We need to have something that is a little bit structurally sound so that people do not live in fear of losing a job, profiting a mortgage, going down the pipe. It's just not the way to live. And we also need to live in a society where certain fundamental rights are recognized. To me, and I'm speaking as an individual, I think education, if it's compulsory, which is one of the principles, there has to be some right associated with that. Do you find Canada in the same state of affairs as the United States? No, Canada is an anomaly, and they'll tell you when you're looking at the G8 or the G20, Canada is the one country that has come out better than anyone else. And the reason for that is we have much stricter uh, bank rules. First of all, in the United States, you have or had 3,200 banks, ranging from the big ones, the Chase and Bank of America, to uh, one branch on the corner of Chicago. We have six banks, period. So they're all capitalized in the billions. If a bank in Canada, one of the major banks, lost $250 million, that's a sandwich for them. That's not a big deal. Number two, these mortgages, subprimes as they're called, weren't allowed into Canada. They didn't get a foothold. We had zero down and we had people who were a higher risk, but nothing like what you've had down there. First of all, we didn't have the collapse. I'm, I'm in Toronto, where the market is still growing, and the prices are still solid. Okay, I happen to be in real estate now, because I, I used that to make, uh, because I left uh, teaching in Canada to go to Australia, I took out my pension to finance it, so I don't have a strong pension as a teacher. So I make some extra money as a real estate salesperson. Now, it's just booming in Toronto. And of course, Canada has become a resource economy. It was always to some extent, but you've heard of the oil sands in Alberta. Alberta is booming. Saskatchewan has potash, which is a fertilizer for farms all over the world. It's booming. Newfoundland has oil off the East Coast, the Hibernian oil field. So we are not in the same position as most of the other G8. We're better than all of them, for that matter, and that has been said. Some of them have, have been looking at the Canadian banking system as a model, 
you went through a period, by the way, of deregulation. This is this is a big term in American politics as well as economics. Regulation versus deregulation applies to the banks, applies to the airlines, etc. When they deregulated, that had certain benefits, but it also left certain corporations open to doing things that were not healthy. And the people who suffer are not the Wall Street bankers, but the people who have put their pensions, who lost in that 2008. These were large pension funds. The same with Enron and WorldCom and all these places. These were pension funds that went down. Pensions should be inviolable. They should be set aside. No one has access to them, certainly not the corporation. They need to be protected. The European members of the G8, their situation is a little bit different. They've got this issue of sovereign debt versus the private banking system going crazy with derivatives and subprime mortgages and, and so on. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like Canada escaped even the sovereign debt situation. Oh, absolutely. The, the Greece was 130% of gross domestic product. This is the ratio that they use. The United States is now about 100 your GDP is about 14 trillion a year. You just went over 14 trillion in sovereign debt nationally. But you've got to add to that all the provincial or state debts, the municipal debts, etc. The big issue with Europe is Europe has a lot of entitlements. The Greeks, for example, we have a neighbor. He works here and he goes to Greece every summer. He came back from Greece last summer and he said, I have to start paying taxes. It's about time. He said, they're, they're crazy over there. They don't want to pay taxes. They just got somebody over there that owes $67 million in taxes, never paid taxes. Now, they've got all of these entitlements, and somewhere down the road, someone has to pay the piper because the economy will not support it. We have in Canada, by the way, certain entitlements, but they're moderated and they're funded. So, for example, we have socialized medicine, as you probably know, and it needs some tweaking to say the least, because people will abuse it. Anything free, people will abuse. Abuse it. I didn't have an aspirin until I was over 18. My dad was a pharmacist. He said, let your system deal with it. Now people run to the emergency ward with a cold or this or that. Or you, the kid fell down, bruises his ankle, etc. Europe has serious issues with balancing its budget in terms of what the revenues are, and with what the uh, entitlements or the expenses are. The other issue, by the way, in international economics is you've got um, China, for example, the country of the future. You've got the Chinese government that will subsidize industries heavily. Now, how do corporations compete with governments? There's a story about Apple when they wanted to see if they could make the, the faceplate, the uh, see-through part of the iPhone in China, they went over and found out that they'd already built the factory and they didn't have the contract. And they said, what's going on? And they said, oh, that's just in case we get the contract. The government had already paid for it. The government over the same thing with solar panels. The Americans invented it. The Chinese build the factories with government assistance. And now how can you compete? How can you possibly compete? No wonder the rust belts of Ohio and Michigan. I mean, the doors of free trade. And remember, we're free traders. But it has to be sane. It's not a level playing field. So a lot of these things are working themselves out. And again, it's an awareness level. These things are only just now starting to come out. And as people see more and more as to what really is going on, 
they see that the system, whether it's national, international, or even local, needs some serious therapy. Well, Terry, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us. You're very welcome, Warren. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Terry Spratt, a Baha'i and educator who has traveled all over the world in service to humanity through education. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.